The first question theologians have asked over the ages is this, can we really know God? And theologians would title this as searching out God's incomprehensibility. How can we really know God? Can we really comprehend who God is and what he does? If we can, how do we do it? What does the Bible say about knowing God? These are all important questions in our study of the nature of God. These are the questions we are answering today on Naptime Theology. Hey there, you're listening to Naptime Theology with Deborah Gandy, learning about the God of the Bible while our children sleep, because theology is for every mom. And it's Naptime! Hey, thanks for listening today. Those questions about knowing God can really stump us sometimes. And for me personally, answers to questions like, can we really know God, have come as a given. I grew up in church with daily Bible reading and talking about God all the time. So, of course, I would think, yes, I can know God. But in the last couple of years, as I have been studying more, those questions have become a lot more relevant. When you read about how vast God is, how holy he is, how powerful he is, or how majestic he is, it does make you wonder, can we actually know him, or is he totally incomprehensible? Well, to help us answer those questions today, let's first define some terms. When we use the word incomprehensible in theology, it is a little different than its everyday use. If I describe the instruction manual for my daughter's dollhouse as incomprehensible, I would mean that there was no way I could understand it. But when we use the word incomprehensible in theology, it does not mean that we can't know anything about God. It means that our knowledge of God will always be limited. R.C. Sproul said that we can have an apprehensive, meaningful knowledge of God, but we can never, and not even in heaven, we can never have an exhaustive knowledge of him. We can never totally comprehend all that he is. I think God's incomprehensibility comes out the most in the way we speak about God. Our human language doesn't fully describe him, so how could we fully know him? And here are a few examples of that from the Bible. The Bible often talks about God in anthropomorphic language. Now, I know that's a really big word, so let's explain what it means first. The first part, the prefixed anthropo, comes from the Greek word anthropos, which means man, mankind, or human. And the second part of the word morphic comes from the term for the study of forms and shapes, morphology. So the word anthropomorphic means in human form. And there are many examples of anthropomorphic language throughout scripture. Psalm 50 verse 10 is a helpful example. It says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And when we read that verse, do we immediately think of God as some divine rancher up in the sky slinging pistols on his hips, ready to take ten paces and turn and shoot at the bad guy? No. When we read that, we know that this verse is speaking to God's reign over creation. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, refers to his divine reign over all the animals in the world. He is powerful and self-sufficient, just like a human rancher who owns vast herds of cattle. Another way that we talk about God is by describing him with human attributes. The Bible clearly states that God is a spirit in John 4.24, which says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
This means that God is not physical, but spiritual. However, when we read the Bible, we find more anthropomorphic language that describes God with physical attributes. Isaiah 41 verse 13 says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. We understand that this verse means that God will help us as if he is holding our right hand, not that he literally takes our hand to hold it. And Psalm 34:15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry for help. But that doesn't mean that God actually has literal physical eyes and ears. Rather, he sees and hears us, just like we see and hear things with our physical eyes and ears. We are speaking about God in human terms. And the reason we use language like this is because of God's incomprehensibility. We cannot fully know God, and therefore we cannot fully describe him with our own language and terms. So, even the language that is used in the Bible tells us that we cannot fully know God. But even though we cannot fully describe him as these verses and uses of human terms show, we do have meaningful ways of talking about him. Those same verses that I just read are very meaningful and very encouraging. It's great that God rules creation as a rancher rules over his cattle. And it's very comforting that God helps us as if he is taking our right hand and holding it. And it's very uplifting that God is always looking and listening for the needs of his children. So even our language and the terms we use to describe God shows that we cannot fully understand him. Okay, now we've defined a few of those terms. Let's get to the big question. Can we really know God? We kind of answered it already, but we can really know God by being humble. I don't know about you, but those verses and the language they use are pretty humbling in and of themselves. I mean, we can't even totally explain God with our own language. But if we want to really know God, we have to be more humble because it's truly nothing of ourselves that brings us to knowledge of God. We can only know about God by what he has revealed to us. Uh, Joel Beakey, a theologian, said, Certainly, if theology were man's quest to discover God, it could never break free from agnosticism. And agnosticism is the belief that we never, we can never know about the existence of God. However, Christian theology arises from God's pursuit of man. So it's not what we do, but God's pursuit of us. And it's not our own work of studying theology that brings us to know God. There are many theologians, actually, who know theology really well, and they don't actually know God at all. So it's God showing us who he is in Jesus Christ's work and in the Bible that we get to know him. That is why James said in James 1 verse 21 that we must receive the word meekly. It's only because of God's love and desire to love us that we know him, not anything that we do. So we see this played out really well in the book of Job. The beginning of the book, Job loses all that he has and is sat down covered in sores, crying to God for answers. And Job says in Job 9 verse 10 that it's God who does great things, the unfathomable and wondrous works without number. And this phrase is repeated by several of his friends. God is unfathomable or incomprehensible. It's not until the final chapters of Job that God reveals himself to Job in a couple of long chapters all about the works of God and how Job knows nothing of them. Then after the long array of God's wondrous works, Job responds to God by saying that God's ways are too wondrous for him. He only knows about God's ways because God told him. Job's humility is what brought him to this magnificent confession. 
And Jesus summed this idea up really well for us in Matthew 11, verse 27, which says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. So God reveals himself to us so that we can know him. So back to that question, can we really know God? Well, according to these verses, yes, we can know God only because he has revealed himself to us. Even though we cannot exactly explain everything about God perfectly, and even our language will remain human, we can still know God. And though we will not comprehend all of God exhaustively, we can still know him. It's actually from this knowledge of God, of knowing theology and doctrine, that we derive our faith, hope, and love. That's why Spurgeon said, quote, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing will so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity, close quote. Okay, so yes, we can really know God. But what about that second question? How? How can we really know God? Well, thankfully, God reveals himself to us in two ways that David covers in Psalm chapter 19. The first section of the Psalm, verses 1 through 6, tells us that God has revealed himself through the world he has created. I'll read them for you. It says, The heavens tell the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a groom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the other end of them, and nothing is hidden from its heat. So the first way we learn about God is from the testimony of his creation. That first verse says his glory is in the heavens. Nothing is hidden from the sunshine that he provides. That means the earth is full of God's wonders that show us his character. His faithfulness, patience, orderliness, and justice can all be seen in creation, among many other aspects of who he is. That's what we would call general revelation. The knowledge that God has revealed to us in the world is available for every person, with or without a Bible. Second way that God reveals himself to us is in his word. The next section of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10, read like this. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God has given us his holy word, the Bible, in order to reveal himself to us. The words on the pages of scripture pour out knowledge of the Lord that he wants us to know and that he wants us to love. And that is what we call special revelation. The knowledge that God has revealed to us in the Bible is only available in his word. So Psalm 19 tells us the two ways that God reveals himself to us, but it also answers one final question for us. Why does God want us to know him? God reveals himself to us in general and special revelation so that he can save us and sanctify us. That is what the final verses of Psalm 19 tell us. They read like this. Moreover, by them, by the words of the Lord, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of my hidden faults. 
Also keep your servant back from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be innocent and I will be blameless of great wrongdoing. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So God uses both the general revelation, the knowledge in creation and the world, and special revelation, the knowledge of him in the Bible, to bring us to salvation in him and to sanctify us or mold us into Christ's likeness, which ultimately brings him glory. That's what that last section is talking about. Keeping us away from sin, not letting sin rule over us in salvation, and making us be more like Christ, where the words and meditations of our heart will be acceptable before the Lord. So what does all of this mean for us today? To sum up, we cannot fully know God. He is incomprehensible. Our language and finite thinking prove it. But as we humble ourselves, we see that he has graciously revealed himself to us in both creation and the Bible so that we can know him and bring him glory. But what does it all mean for us today? What does God's incomprehensibility mean for us today? Well, we get that answer from the Psalms as well. Psalm 145 verse 3 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That means that we should have no limit to our praise of God because he himself is limitless. Spurgeon said it well, and I will quote him, quote, Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out, and therefore his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. So, let's let this theology of God's incomprehensibility, the vastness of God that we will never discover, fuel our praise of him, our doxology. As you go about your day today, find moments to praise God for his greatness that you will never know, for his compassion that will never run out, for his almighty power that we cannot even fathom. Maybe you'll be washing the dishes and have a second to think. Think about God's vast ocean of love and mercy toward you. Or you're brushing your child's teeth. Think of God's tender grace that reaches out to you all the time. Or you're mopping the floor. Think of God's forgiveness that will never run out no matter how much we fail. Turn what you know about God into praise of him today. God is incomprehensible, but not totally incomprehensible. And for that, I am so thankful. If you would like to read a transcript of this podcast, I have linked one in the show notes, or you can find it directly on my blog, naptimetheologian.com. Thank you so much for listening to Naptime Theology today. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss new theological concepts explained and applied to everyday mom life. Have a great day!